0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Lee Elgin I'm a partner at the law firm Neil Gerber & Eisenberg in Chicago. I've been practicing law approximately 15 years and I have been at Neil Gerber for about 10 years the whole time in intellectual property. In terms of specifically the nature of my intellectual property practice, I do an extensive amount of litigation both in the U.S. federal courts and before the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. I've also handled many domain name disputes before WIPO and other arbitration bodies. I also handle trademark prosecution around the world as well as transactional IP work, including licensing and intellectual property transactions. With regard to the article that I had written related to gray market goods and counterfeit goods and some of the recent U.S. legislation written in an effort to try and deal with some of those issues, it's available both on our firm's website, which is ngelaw.com. It's both available through the firm's publications page as well as through my bio. Also, it's sort of, I think, proliferated around to be on other content aggregation sites such as one that I particularly like, to give it a quick plug, Lexology. So I know it's been on Lexology since being first published by our firm and has attained relatively significant readership there as well. Obviously, counterfeiting and gray market sales certainly detract from Companies own sales and hence from the bottom line. The other thing that I think is important for the listener to think about is how the internet has made counterfeit and gray market goods much more easily accessed now via the internet. They've proliferated greatly. It's easy here, even sitting in the United States, to order counterfeit product that would, for instance, be shipped overseas with a transaction facilitated by a website. Whereas, you know, maybe 20 years ago before the quote internet revolution, a lot of counterfeit sales, even though they, some counterfeit goods might originate overseas, the sales of those goods would be local now. Sales can be facilitated easily all around the world via the internet. So just to quote a statistic from my article, it's estimated that this year in 2012, as high as 22% of all consumer goods sold online will be counterfeit. I find that statistic quite remarkable given that you know we're talking about a trillion-dollar industry now. Certainly one particular industry, the pharmaceutical industry has been really hit by counterfeit products and for obvious reasons there are significant health risks to ingesting, for instance, counterfeit pharmaceuticals and you know there have been a number of high profile cases where US consumers have not only been economically but physically damaged by counterfeit products of a pharmaceutical nature. CBP is U.S. Customs and Border Protection. It's a division of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Essentially, Customs and Border Protection, or what people colloquially refer to as customs, was sort of brought under the banner of Department of Homeland Security, sort of post-9-11, 2001. Essentially, CBP is responsible for the inflow and outflow of goods through all 317 U.S. ports of entry. With regard to its trademark recordation system, I think a lot of brand owners, even sophisticated brand owners, perhaps have the misconception that here in the United States that essentially when it comes to trying to vest yourself with rights in your brands, that the one step that you need to take is registering those brands through the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And while I think that that is an important, if not essential, step, I think a misconception among brand owners is that then that allows Customs and Border Protection, CBP, to act on your behalf. And in essence, while that is at least partially true, the easiest way to get Customs and Border Protection to act on your behalf as a brand owner is to then, after you obtain a U.S. federal registration, for your trademark is to record it with CBP through the CBP website. So there are benefits to doing that. It's in benefits that go well beyond simply registering your trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It used to be a highly manual, paper-driven system, not surprisingly, and so parties that were interested in recording trademark registrations with customs, would have to submit the registrations on paper along with a letter and a relatively nominal recordation fee. And I think, hopefully, I'm being fair to our great people and citizens who work for CBP, when I say that in my experience back in those days, it was harder for CBP, I think, to enforce the trademark rights of all brand owners. Because, you know, when you're dealing with a paper system and you've got thousands of trademark registrations recorded, I think that somewhat intuitively it was easier for CBP to enforce the rights of famous brands, you know, brands you've heard of, say Microsoft or Polaroid or brands that customs officers were familiar with at that time as being famous brands and when they saw questionable goods come into a U.S. port of entry, bearing an approximation of those brands, it was easy then to look up the brand owner and pick up the phone and call them and ask questions about the authenticity of the goods being examined. For the lesser-known brands, again, given that it was a paper-driven system at that time, you know, back... 10-plus years ago, it was harder for customs officers, understandably, to be familiar with all those brands, even though those brands were recorded, because it was largely a paper-driven system now, to come full circle. It, you know, it's very easy to record one's U.S. federal trademark registration with CBP. and do it right online. Again, it's a relatively nominal fee to do it. So it's really for anyone who trades in goods as opposed to services, you know, hence implicating the fine work of CBP it's a necessary in my view step and we encourage all of our clients here to do it to kind of bring it fully in context then obviously now with all of those records being online it's much easier for customs officers to question, enforce, review the rights of perhaps lesser known brands or startup brands that haven't penetrated the public consciousness as much as the brands that I mentioned a few moments ago. There's been a ton of Public debate and some sort of loud outcry about both proposed laws, and so I guess we'll sort of lump them together. The one that's obtained more attention, even though they're, I think, both been debated now in the media, the one that's obtained more attention is SOPA, the Stop Online Piracy Act. That one, to focus on it, because again, the Protect IP Act is relatively speaking anyway, lesser known, and includes a lot of the same protections. And SOPA was introduced by a U.S. representative Lamar Smith in Texas. In a nutshell, I would say the most significant and hence controversial provisions include the ability for private parties to apply for court orders preventing U.S. ad networks, online ad networks, U.S. payment facilitators, i.e. credit card companies, U.S. search engines, even U.S. ISPs, Internet Service Providers, apply for court orders preventing them from engaging in trade of any sort or even linking with those sites, sites that are adjudicated to be dealing in counterfeit goods. And, pausing my opinion a little bit, my feeling has been that SOPA and the Protect IP Act, you know, whichever one ultimately would be enacted into law if that were to happen, would be an important tool for U.S. brand owners to use in combating third-party sites that are engaged in trading in counterfeit goods or illegally trading in copyrighted content. And I think the real effectiveness of these legal mechanisms would be against offshore sites because I think Representative Smith and others in Congress have recognized that because of the limitations on jurisdiction of the U.S. courts, it's difficult to combat sites that are halfway around the world, offshore somewhere, that are beaming, infringing copyrighted content, infringing the copyright, frankly, of U.S. content owners, or shipping counterfeit goods, you know, here into our country. It's difficult for us to combat those sites effectively when those sites are subject primarily to the laws of jurisdictions certainly outside of U.S. control and perhaps jurisdictions that have legal systems that are not as sophisticated with regard to intellectual property as the U.S. system. So in my opinion, again, to the extent that one of those laws comes to pass and ultimately is signed, they would provide an important tool against the type of conduct that I'm talking about, particularly those sites that are offshore that are otherwise difficult to stop with mechanisms that we can currently invoke vis-a-vis the U.S. courts. There's been a huge, again, outcry and response. Many have indicated that belief that somehow this is going to impact First Amendment rights, freedom of speech rights, there was even, as I'm sure many listeners to this podcast will have heard about, an quote-unquote internet blackout led by Wikipedia and some other high-profile sites on January 18th of this year, whereby the sites basically blacked out portions of their content in, in protest to possible enactment of these U.S. laws. Likewise, Basically, there's sort of been a slippery slope argument espoused in response to these laws, namely that, you know, if only one page of a website has infringing content, nonetheless, these laws, if enacted, could be used to essentially shut down an entire website for one small bit of, albeit, wrongful conduct. I think those arguments are fair arguments, but again, you know, I personally hope that here in 2012, both SOPA and the Protect IP Act have temporarily at least been withdrawn or sort of barred down in Congress, but in 2012, I hope that one or both of them or another similar law or bill springs back to life in Congress and that ultimately something is enacted that does allow U.S. brand owners and U.S. content owners to have a better mechanism to fight, in particular, these offshore sites that are engaged in very blatant conduct and are, frankly, stealing dollars from upstanding U.S. businesses. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.